0: Aristotle and Other Platonists. Chapter 3 The Categories of Reality. The Neoplatonic treatment of Aristotle's categories is especially useful for understanding how harmonization works. For one thing, there exists an abundance of Neoplatonic commentaries on Aristotle's categories. For another, since the study of the categories was taken by the Neoplatonists, as the beginning of the philosophical curriculum, a good deal of what they have to say about the harmonization of Plato and Aristotle is expressed in their commentaries on this work. Finally, categories itself and the organon in general were assumed to be amenable to a high degree of harmonization. The reasons are as follows. Plato has little directly to say about the matters discussed in the Organon. One can, without excessive strain, read categories as concerned entirely with language and conceptual thinking. And though Plato does have a great deal to say about these matters, it is not so clear that his remarks stand in the way of accepting the import of the far more detailed discussions of Aristotle. Further, The very idea of a categorization of types of being in the world seems to reflect Plato's injunction in the statesman to make one's concepts correspond to natural divisions. Finally, and most important, categories could be considered to be intended as an introduction to the study of nature, that is, to the study of the sensible composites. Such a study could be assumed to be carried out under general Platonic metaphysical principles, in particular the hierarchical subordination of becoming to being. Nevertheless, what Aristotle says in categories primarily about substance, ousia seems to contemporary readers at least a stumbling block, sufficient to deter all but the most benighted Platonist. How, it may well be asked, could anyone suppose that if Aristotle is correct about the fundamental structure of things as explained in categories, one could still maintain the cogency, much less the correctness, of the Platonic position? It is the Neoplatonists' answer to this question that I want to explore in this chapter. Aristotle asserts, a substance spoken of in the most fundamental primary, and highest sense of the word, is that which is neither said of a subject, nor present in a subject, for instance, some man or some horse, end quote. From this assertion, it seems clear that one, sensible things like a man or a horse are fundamental substances, two, What is said of or present in the substance is not itself a fundamental substance. On the face of it, one would suppose that by placing an individual man or horse in the focus of the account of things, Aristotle is directly contradicting Plato's view that the sensible world generally is posterior or subordinate to the intelligible world, the realm of forms. And if this is so, one naturally wonders whether harmonization is merely wishful thinking. Before we accept such a conclusion, we need to realize that the Neoplatonic commentators on categories did not come to their work innocent of a broad and deep knowledge of the entire Aristotelian corpus as they possessed it. Although they did not use the convention of footnotes, The references in their commentaries to other works of Aristotle are ubiquitous. So, we may be certain they knew that what is said in the categories hardly constitutes a definitive and unambiguous statement of Aristotle's view of substance. For example, we need to take into account what Aristotle says in metaphysics about primary substance. At Zeta 3, 102.9a, 30-32, we read... Quote, "Accordingly the form of the composite the form of the composite would seem to be a substance to a higher degree than matter the composite substance that is the composite of matter and shape may be laid aside for it is posterior and clear" End quote. What exactly this posteriority amounts to needs to be explored but it is not obvious that if some man or some horse is a composite substance, such a thing truly is a substance in the primary sense. As I mentioned in my introduction, one way of dealing with the apparent contradiction is to postulate some sort of development in Aristotle's thinking from an early phase that holds sensible composites to be primary to a later phase that attributes absolute priority to something else. Developmentalism, as a hypothesis about Aristotle's writings, is prima facie plausible, though deeply unsatisfactory in its results. Much the same can be said about the hypothesis of Plato's development. I am not aware that developmentalism occurred to any of the Neoplatonists as an interpretive hypothesis. No doubt part of the explanation for this is that they were interested primarily not in the history of philosophy but rather in the philosophical truths that the ancients had discovered and delivered in their writings. Another part of the explanation is that they took a different approach to the Aristotelian corpus, one that precluded any need for developmentalism in the first place. One of the fundamental questions that Neoplatonic commentators generally asked about a text of Plato or Aristotle, or indeed anyone else, was what is the aim or scopos, of this work. If two works, such as Categories and Metaphysics, were supposed to have different aims, then contradictions were much less likely to be seen. In fact, it was generally supposed that these two works did have different aims, the former being logical in nature, and the latter being ontological. The origin of the identification of categories as a logical work actually seems to be peripatetic. The very ordering of the Aristotelian corpus by Andronicus of Rhodes in the first century BCE emphasizes both the introductory nature of the organon and its separation uh, from the study of ultimate principles in metaphysics. Porphyry, it seems, follows the peritetic commentator, Alexander of Aphrodisias, in the distinction between a logical and an ontological aim. In his commentary on Aristotle's categories, Porphyry writes, The subject of this book, that is the categories, is the primary imposition of expressions, which are used for communicating about things, for it concerns simple significant sounds insofar as they signify things, Not, however, as they differ from one another in number, but as differing in genus. For things and expressions are both practically infinite in number. But his intention is not to list expressions one by one. For each one signifies one particular being. But since things that are many in number are one in species or in genus, the infinity of beings and of the expressions that signify them is found to be included under a list of ten genera. Since beings are comprehended by ten generic differentiae, the sounds that indicate them have also come to be ten in genus, and are themselves also so classified. Thus, predications are said to be ten in genus, just as beings themselves are ten in genus. So. Since the subject of this book is significant expressions differing in genus, insofar as they signify, and people used to call speaking of things according to a certain signification, and in general the utterance of a significant expression about something as predication, it was quite reasonable for him to give the title categories to this elementary discussion of simple expressions which considers them according to genus, insofar as they primarily signify things." As Porphyry is well aware, his account of the aim of categories was not universally accepted. In fact, it was apparently not accepted by his master Plotinus, among others, who held that the work was not about the genera of expressions, but about the genera of being, or things. Let us grant for the moment that the aim of categories is open to question. Let us further grant that Porphyry's interpretation of that aim is not an unreasonable one. Still, one wants to insist that this interpretation does not remove the objection to harmonization. For the distinction between a logical and an ontological work does not imply that a logical work is totally innocent of any ontological commitments. Indeed, if logic is to be, as Aristotle evidently thought, an effective tool of demonstrative science, it is because that tool is shaped according to the ontological commitments of science. Chief among these commitments seems to be the absolute priority of such things as this man and this horse. I shall return to treat at some length the efforts to reconcile, with or without developmentalism, what is said in the passage from Metaphysics Zeta 3, quoted above, with what is said in the categories. For the present, I want to focus on how harmonization is understood by Porphyry to be applied to the latter. In Porphyry's description of the aim of the categories, he employs the phrase simple, significant sounds. These are nouns such as man, gold, white, and verbs such as walks. The simple imposition of these sounds, or words, is their reference to particulars. So, this man, for instance, Socrates, is white. Or this man, for instance, Socrates, walks. Or this man, Socrates, is a man. Yeah. These are all examples of the use of simple significant words. From the perspective of a Neoplatonist, simple imposition here reminds one of Plato's Sophist, where a similar account is given of nouns and verbs together used to say something about something. For example, Theaetetus sits, says something about this man, Theaetetus, since on the surface, Plato's account of how Theaetetus sits is constructed, is not different from Aristotle's account of Socrates' walks, we need to ask why it should be thought that Aristotle is not merely saying something different from Plato in categories, but something radically different. Typically, the belief that there is something different going on is based on the supposition that Aristotle and Plato are offering conflicting explanations of predication. Plato thinks that, in general, if X is F is true, where X stands for some sensible thing and F stands for an attribute of it, then the explanation is that par- X participates in a form of fness. Aristotle's explanation of X is F is supposedly different and incompatible. In fact, when one searches categories for the putative alternative explanation, it becomes clear that though Aristotle has quite a bit to say about such statements as X is F and their meaning, he does not in categories regard the statement X is F as needing an explanation in the way that Plato does. So. When Aristotle claims that Socrates is white means that white is present in Socrates, he is not ipso facto contradicting the Platonic explanation for the truth of Socrates as white, namely that Socrates participates in the form of whiteness. Further, when Aristotle in On Interpretation defines universal, catholu, as that which by its nature is predicable of more than one. He is not obviously offering predication as an alternative to Platonic participation. Thus, if Socrates is a man and Plato is a man, mean that man is predicated of Socrates and Plato, and man is taken as a universal There is no reason i can see for holding that therefore it is false that plato and socrates participate in the form of man nor it must be granted is the aristotelian meaning any reason to believe in platonic explanation the neoplatonists were if nothing else passionately interested in the ultimate explanations of things so we need to have a closer look at the theory of forms as providing ultimate explanations and what this means for the interpretation of Aristotle. In Phaedo, Plato has Socrates assert that if something is beautiful, it is owing to participation in the form of beauty. Two lines later, this participation is assumed to be be synonymous with the instrumental causality of the form. But the forms here are adduced as a particular sort of explanans. In effect, they provide the explanation for the possibility of predication. Because forms exist, it is possible that genuine or true predication should occur. The central point to be made in this regard is that if postulating forms explains the possibility of non-arbitrary predication, the actual account of predication, what it means to say that x is f, is not on the face of it in danger of being in conflict with that explanation. The central point to be made in this regard is that if postulating forms explains the possibility of non-arbitrary predication, the actual account of predication, what it means to say that X is F, is not on the face of it in danger of being in conflict with that expression. Aristotle himself supports this interpretation in the very midst of his criticism of Plato's theory. Aristotle complains that, quote, those who posited ideas as causes... End quote. Gratuitously introduced these ideas equal in number to the things they sought to explain. For, quote, there exists a form having the same name as that which is predicated of the many sensibles, of substances as well as of non substances, and of these things as well as of eternal things. End quote. Although the arguments here are difficult, they are addressed in chapter seven, what is clear is that Aristotle does not, at least in this passage, view the theory of forms as being preempted by the account of predication in categories, unless we choose gratuitously to understand that account as precluding the need to explain the possibility of predication. For Neoplatonists, generally, harmonization is made plausible by treating Plato as providing explanations for the possibility of that which Aristotle describes and categorizes. Harmonization is made plausible by treating Plato as providing explanations for the possibility of that which Aristotle describes and categorizes. Of course, from the positing of entities to account for the possibility of predication much follows, including things that are finally, perhaps, irreconcilable with Aristotelian claims. We are, at this point, however, quite a distance from that stage. I here only note something to which I return later, namely that the sort of explanation the theory of forms was taken to be is deeply connected with the top-down approach of Neoplatonism. According to this approach, ultimate and complete explanations are not precluded by categorization or hypothesis. On the contrary, they are required for them. The distinction between participation and predication is clearly understood by the Neoplatonist Iamblichus. In his commentary on the categories of Aristotle, as reported by Simplicius, he writes, quote, Genera are not predicated of subjects, but the predicates are different owing to these. That is, because of genera. For whatever we say Socrates, whenever we say Socrates is a man, we are not saying that he is the genus man, but that he partakes of the genus man. Iamblichus does not misunderstand Aristotle to be identifying Socrates with man. He understands him to be saying something that is consistent with holding that Socrates is a man because he partakes of the form of man. This may be doubted, for Aristotle is generally interpreted to be saying that if man is said of Socrates, that means that man does partially identify him. That is the point about essential predication, 38. Aristotle's distinction in categories between said of and present in, understood as a distinction between essential and accidental predication, may be thought to be the smoking gun of anti-harmonization. If the predicate man is said of Socrates, socrates, then this does not in fact mean that Socrates participates in the form of man, precisely because participation is incompatible with essential predication. And though participation may not be clearly incompatible with accidental predication in the same way, it may be reasonably held that accidental predication can be properly understood in an Aristotelian manner only in contrast to the essential predications that belong to the first category, substance. That is, to understand what it means to say that white is present in Socrates, we have to understand what it means to say that Socrates stands for some substance, and a substance is that which has essential predicates. Porphyry identifies that which is said of a a substance as a universal, catholu. Porphyry identifies that which is said of a substance as a universal. He goes on, famously, to allow that what it means to say that a universal is said of a subject is a deep matter. Porphyry hereby announces the problem of universals, as understood by medieval philosophers, Namely, the problem of the ontological status of what is said of particular substances. But later in his commentary, he addresses the matter to a certain extent. He claims that we come to conceive of and apply the universal predicate as a result of perception. As a result of perception. So, if particular animals are eliminated what is predicated in common of them will no longer exist. But this leads to the objection that Aristotle himself elsewhere regards intelligible substances, namely the mind, the gods, and forms, if there be such, as primary substances. Therefore, how can he maintain that sensible substances are primary? Porphyry's reply is most instructive. Quote, I shall say that since the subject of the work is significant expressions, and expressions are applied primarily to sensibles, for men first of all assign names to what they know and perceive, and only secondarily to those things that are primary by nature, but secondary with respect to perception, is it is reasonable for him to have called things that are primary Signified by ex- primarily signified by expressions, that is, sensibles and individuals, primary substances. Thus, with respect to significant expressions, sensible individuals are primary substances. But, as regards nature, intelligible substances are primary. But his intention is to distinguish the genera of being according to the expressions that signify them. And these primarily signify individual sensible substances." End quote. What is clear from the passage above is that the said of relation is not taken to be primarily participation in forms. What is said of a particular substance is a universal. A universal is a word or concept. In no sense does a universal replace. explanatory role of form. Porphyry was in part relying on the great commentator Alexander of Aphrodisias for his understanding of universals in Aristotle. As we shall see, Alexander's account is encouraging to the Harmonist, especially since it comes from perhaps the first state-sponsored professor of peripatetic philosophy. Alexander was no doubt in some sense a committed Aristotelian partisan which would presumably suggest his rejection of a theory of forms as a theory of universals. Alexander's consideration of this matter, however, is far from exhausted by his peremptory characterization. His account is frequently, and I believe unfairly, dismissed as incoherent. Alexander, in his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, endorses the Aristotelian position that everything that is separate is an individual. Yet he acknowledges that a plurality of individuals may possess the same nature. This nature is neither an individual nor a universal, for the universal is just this nature as conceived. The universality is accidental to the nature. This nature is prior to any individual that possesses it. It is also prior to the universal. If one does not keep the nature distinct from the universal, it's easy to fall into two mistakes. First, there is the mistake of supposing that Alexander means to hold that when no universal thinking or predicating is occurring, then things do not have the natures. They have. But clearly Alexander wants to hold no- nothing of the sort. Second, there is the more subtle mistake of holding that the disappearance of the basis for universal predication, namely the presence of a plurality with the same nature, indicates the absence or disappearance of the nature. This is not the case, however, if the nature is prior to the universal. Though Alexander believes that if there is only one individual with a given nature, there is no basis for universal predication, he obviously does not maintain the contradictory position that the nature the individual possesses would therefore not exist. The distinction between nature and universal should be plain if we consider that If there is only one individual possessing the nature, then though the universal does not exist, the nature does. But what if there are no individuals possessing the nature? Does the nature no longer exist? Certainly the genus would no longer exist, since the universal disappears. From the foregoing, it seems that Alexander wants to reject forms only if they are taken as separate universals, that is, if universality is not understood as accidental to their natures. In addition, he seems to recognize that the natures in which individuals share serve an explanatory function distinct from the role that universals fulfill. The nature animal is distinct from and prior to universal animal, which is predicated of many individual animals that share this nature. It is distinct from the genus or species. We may, however, wonder whether the priority possessed by the nature is ontological priority. That is, whether Alexander is implicitly endorsing a version of a theory of forms, shorn of the burden of being a theory of universals. Indeed, it is difficult to see how, if ontological priority is not what the nature has, that nature would not be reduced to the universal. Fortunately, speculation on this matter is unnecessary, for Alexander in his De Anima distinguishes in mattered forms from the forms that are completely separate from matter. These two types of form are objects of two different types of thought. The latter are just the natures previously distinguished from universals. For example, bronze is distinct from what it is to be bronze, and it is the latter that is causally responsible for the former. Alexander does not offer an argument for the postulation of separate natures, nor does he offer an argument for his subsequent claim that these separate natures are eternally thought by an eternal mind, and in being thought are thought universally. I cannot here enter into the complex and fascinating issue of how this latter claim is related to Platonists' treatment of forms as thoughts in the divine mind of the demiurge, or to Alexander's identification of the eternal mind that eternally thinks the separate natures with the mind of the unmoved mover and the agent intellect in Aristotle's De Anima. I only wish to emphasize that Alexander, in offering an account of universals which he presumably takes to be in line with that of his master Aristotle, does not contradict the underlying reason for postulating forms. In fact, he seems to rely on it. And his rejection of a theory of forms applies only to a theory which incorrectly takes forms to be universals. How does this implicit distinction between form and universal affect the seeming connection of said-of predication with essentialism? Universals, that is, secondary substances, when correctly predicated of a subject, reveal the nature of the subject. Accidents, when correctly predicated of a subject, are less informative there are two ways of understanding what it means to reveal the nature of a subject through predication of species and genera. First, we can understand that what is revealed is the identity of the subject. We reveal, say, what Socrates is. Socrates is a man, is usually understood in this way we can alternatively understand that what is revealed is the nature in which Socrates participates. That Socrates participates in this nature does not imply that Socrates is identified by this nature, at least not that he is identified in a way that is compatible with essentialism rigorously construed. Ordinary predication seems to imply that there is some criterion for the identification of the subject of the predicate independent of the predicate. Normally, the identification is made according to some theory of reference. When Plato discusses ordinary predication, he presumes a simple theory of reference, as in the passage from Sophist, mentioned above. The statement Theatitis sits must be about this man here, Theatetus. Clearly, Theatetus is identified by ostensive reference, independently of the predicate sits. Aristotle, however, seems to want to hold that there is a fundamental difference in the statement X is F, where F is said of X and F is present in X. If F is said of X, Then, on the usual interpretation, F identifies X. But if that is the case, then it is not clear straight away how X independently identifies X. Plotinus, articulating what he takes to be the Platonic account of the said of relation, writes For when I predicate man of Socrates, I mean it not in the sense in which the wood is white, but in the sense that the white thing is white. For, in saying that Socrates is a man, I am saying that a particular man is man, predicating man of the man in Socrates. But this is the same thing as calling Socrates, Socrates, and again as predicating living being of this rational living being, end quote. These rather paradoxical sounding remarks require some background in order to be appreciated. Plotinus is a strong opponent of Aristotle's categories, if these be understood as unqualifiedly applicable to the intelligible world as well as to the sensible world. Plotinus argues strenuously that substance as conceived of in categories does not belong to the intelligible world principally for the obvious reason that a sensible substance contains matter. Since Plotinus also holds that the sensible world is an image or acon of the intelligible world, he is prepared to allow that what is said about the image, for example, what is said about sensible substance might be applicable analogously or homonymously to the intelligible world. What Plotinus rejects, however, is the inference to the absolute priority of the sensible substance, or, in other words, to the claim that the categories are the categories of being. Such a claim to priority is precisely an inversion of the ontological order of of intelligible model and sensible image, in the next chapter, I deal with Plotinus's reasons for thinking that Aristotle himself, as opposed to peripatetic followers, is not committed to such an inversion. Here, I am concerned with how Plotinus thinks that Aristotle in categories might be thought to be in harmony with Plato. With the qualification that the sensible world is an image of the intelligible world, Plotinus is open to acknowledging and employing the fundamental distinctions made in categories. In particular, he recognizes a fundamental difference underlying the said-of and present-in relations. The difference is reflected in the foregoing quotations. There is no question in Plotinus' mind that there exists, for example, something to which the name man refers primarily, and something to which the name white refers primarily. These things are forms. The white man, Socrates, participates in both of them. But where Plotinus demurs is at the suggestion that Socrates is essentially a man, where this is interpreted to mean that the question, is this a man?, is supposed to elicit the identical answer when asked about the form and Socrates essential predication is according to plotinus supposed to identify it does not identify socrates for he can change while his essence does not simply put socrates is much besides what the form of man is elsewhere Plotinus contrasts the intelligible world, where the question, what is it, is a question about everything that a form is, and the same question asked of something in the sensible world, where the answer to the question includes less than everything that the thing is. Plotinus accommodates Aristotelian essentialism in distinguishing this man is man from this man is white. The distinction is between participation in a form and the presence of an instance of a form in an individual where the latter only indirectly indicates participation in a form. So, this white is white is as much an essentialistic statement, according to Plotinus, as this man is a man. Nevertheless, one is inclined to respond that the contrast between an essential predication and an accidental predication is not thereby accounted for. When Socrates says that Socrates is a man, he means that Socrates would no longer be Socrates if he were no longer a man. Whereas when he says that Socrates is white, he means to imply that Socrates would still be Socrates if his color were to change. It is because Socrates has an essence that he can remain the same throughout accidental changes. Although Plotinus can reply that he too believes that if this man is no longer a man, then this man, Socrates, would no longer be this man, that does not seem to be adequate. Why? Because it is thought that man identifies this man in a way that white does not. In what way? Clearly for the Platonist, the identity of the man Socrates is not the same as the identity of the form of man. There is nothing other than the form of man that is identical with what man names. In the Platonic universe, the identity of sensibles can only be determined relative to forms. For example, in Republic, We can say of some x that it is and is not at the same time. I take it that the words at the same time exclude the possibility that Plato is indicating contingent existence, or even just existence. But the central point here is that some have thought Plato must mean that the only predicates that apply to things that are and are not at the same time are attributes or relatives, that is, some Aristotelian accident, and not some kind or species, that is, some Aristotelian secondary substance, precisely because it makes no sense to say Socrates is and is not a man at the same time, whereas it makes perfect sense to say that Socrates is larger than one thing and smaller than another at the same time. That this is an interpretation unsupported by the text, and counter to claims made elsewhere regarding the range of forms, I shall not here attempt to show. What I want to indicate is that it is an interpretation that Plotinus in particular, and the Neoplatonists generally, do not accept. It is trivially true that this man is not both a man and not a man at the same time. But it is far from trivially true to claim that what I refer to as a man is not something other than a man at the same time. In the latter case, I am referring to some perceptibles, to use a neutral word, and claiming that these are man, are a man. But as Plato himself notes in another context, the logos of a form does not include any perceptibles in it. For example, the logos of beauty will not include Helen's coloring, shape, and so on. Beautiful though she and uh, she be, and we may add beautiful owing in some sense to that coloring, shape, and so on. But these perceptible attributes would belong to an account of this contrary beauty as well. So, what exactly does it mean to say that this is beauty apart from this beauty is beauty and by extension this is a man apart from this man is a man what aristotle has to say in reply to this question in metaphysics is controversial and obscure in chapter six i explore his response in the proper context the neoplatonic response is that participation in a form does not eo ipso fix identity the Neoplatonists could read Aristotle as conceding as much when he says that, quote, the essence of man and man are not the same thing, end quote. One might point out on Aristotle's behalf that the essence of man and man are not the same thing if two men are to have the same essence. But then it must be added that this man is an actualization of the essence of man. And in that case, the Neoplatonists will reply that the essence of man, being thus made to be logically posterior to that which actualizes it, cannot explain anything. The dilemma thrust upon one who takes essentialism to be a doctrine that reveals the identity of things is this. Man names either a universal or a form. The former explains nothing. The latter explains only if it is ontologically prior to, and therefore separate from, that which it explains. If the essence is a universal, then it explains nothing. If the essence is to explain, then it is, then it must do so, as the form does, by being ontologically prior to, and therefore separate from, that which it explains. There is no tertium quid, so the essence can only explain if it does not fix identity. Should we say that the requirement that the essence fix identity is too strong? Perhaps the identity of the individual need only be functionally related to the essence. Thus, the individual remains the same individual throughout its existence because of its controlling essence but composite sensible individuality is constituted by accidental, uh, accidental attributes. If the accidental attributes determine identity, then identity can change with the, grain, uh, the gain or loss of any attribute. Since this is evidently something that Aristotle does not want to say, he has to show that though essence does not unqualifiedly fix identity— and though accidental attributes do not fix identity either, somehow identity is functionally related to essence. And, we may add, the identity here must be diachronic. That is, it is not enough to say that the individual is a man because he has the essence of man, though he might change into another individual with the same essence. The way that Aristotle expresses this position is to say that the individual's identity is qualifiedly determined by its essence. Though this is the nub of the problem, the point is that the Neoplatonists could legitimately interpret this claim such that it does not undermine the explanatory role of forms. For the qualified identity of an individual and its essence seems to be very much like the qualified identity of an image with that of which it is an image. The qualified identity of the sensible substance with its essence is like the qualified identity of a participant in a form with that form. Another way of identifying an individual in categories is via the differentia. The strength of the Neoplatonic approach to Categories is nowhere more evident than in the way the Neoplatonists address the question of the status of the differentia. According to categories, the differentia is that which distinguishes one species from another within a genus. Thus, among the differentiae of the genus, animal, are terrestrial, two-footed, feathered, and aquatic The Differentiae themselves cannot just be species. The Differentiae themselves cannot just be species, that is, secondary substances, for they themselves would then require Differentiae to differentiate them from each other and from the species whose Differentiae they supposedly are. So it would seem that they must be attributes of some kind. but. Categories appears to countenance as attributes only individual accidents of a substance, that which is present in the subject. In addition, the differentia cannot be present in a subject if, as it seems, it belongs to the species. What then is the status of the differentia? It is easy to transform this question into an unsolvable problem if one supposes that categories is offering up an ontology. Nevertheless, there is at least on the surface a problem about the categorical status of the differentia, which is neither a subject nor present in a subject, nor said of a subject in the manner of a secondary substance, nor both said of and present in a subject in the manner of the species and genera of the accidental categories. If, in short, the differentia is neither a substance nor an accident, what could it be? Porphyry's answer to this question is that the differentia is an essential or substantial quality. Such qualities are complements of substances. Complements are those things which, having been removed, Their subjects are destroyed. These subjects might seem to be individual substances. If Socrates loses his rationality, he can no longer survive. But this is also true of the secondary substance, the species. Hence, as Aristotle says, the differentia is predicated both of the species and of the individual. Indeed, As Simplicius argues, the differentia is predicated synonymously of both species and individual. Neither man nor Socrates, the man, could exist if the differentia rationality were removed. As a logical point, this is impeccable. Just as the species and the genus are said synonymously of individuals, so is the complement of the species said synonymously of species and individual. This must be the case since, one, the species just expresses what it is that all the individuals have in common, that is, what is identical in them, and two, the differentia is a part of the species. In short, synonymy is guaranteed by the logic of class inclusion, As an ontological point, however, there are difficulties. In particular, the the differentia rationality seems to be neither an accident of Socrates, that is, present in him, nor a species, since it is not a substance. No doubt, this problem can be posed as a dilemma for Aristotle, though he seems to be quite unaware of it. The Neoplatonic commentators simply assume that the logical or semantic classifications made in categories are precisely not intended uh, as ontological principles. Since a sensible substance is not unqualifiedly basic in the world, even if it is basic in the sensible world, its logical priority in the schema of categories does not presume its absolute or unqualified ontological priority. So the exhaustive fourfold logical division is not an ontological division with seemingly no place to locate the differentia. The differentia rationality is a part of an intelligible substance or essence and is prior to the sensible substance or more accurately said of and present in invert the ontological order for classificatory purposes. According to Plotinus, a sensible substance is a conglomeration of qualities and matter. The real, this, is not Socrates, but the form of man. Socrates is, by contrast, a such-and-such, and an image of that form. The consequences of this claim for the principle of harmonization cannot be overstated. So long as we interpret Aristotle as speaking about images of what is really real, we can follow his way of categorizing these images. Thus, to say that Socrates is essentially a man is not to make a claim about what is ultimately real, but to make a logical claim about a stipulated subject. Stated in a slightly different manner, to say that this man, Socrates, belongs to the category of substance is to treat him as if he were an ultimate item in reality, with an essence that fixes his identity throughout his life. If Aristotle had written only categories, or if only that work had survived, the rather strict logical interpretation of that work would be difficult to gainsay. It is only because metaphysics was written, and survives as well. that we tend tend to see categories as having ontological implications that are contrary to Platonism. But the Neoplatonists had well-thumbed copies of Metaphysics too. They believed generally that there was good reason to deny that Aristotle, in that work, held that things like this man, Socrates, were ultimate items of his ontology. I explore these in chapter 6. The way the identity of a substance is characterized in categories is this the property Idion of substance appears above all Malista to be that excuse me, the property of substance appears above all to be that, while it remains identical in number, it is receptive of contraries. In other words, there is no other thing but someone could adduce as being one in number that is receptive of contraries. For example, a color, which is one and the same in number, will not be both light and dark, nor will the same action, which is one in number, be vicious and virtuous. And similarly, in the other cases, for things that are not substances... But a substance being one and the same in number is receptive of contraries. For example, some man being one and the same is at one time white and another time becomes dark, at one time hot and another time cold, at one time vicious and another time virtuous. Quote. As Aristotle goes on to explain, it is in virtue of a change the, uh, the substance undergoes that it is able to admit of contraries." One can certainly take this passage as indicating Aristotle's primary primary criterion for substantiality to core. But if one does that, one is necessarily committed to the view that what Aristotle says in metaphysics book Lambda indicates a change or development in Aristotle's account of substance. For there he says, quote, there are three kinds of substance. One genus of substance is the sensible, on which all agree, one type of which is destructible, for example plants and animals, and the other is eternal. And it is of these that it is necessary to grasp the elements, whether they are one or many. Another is immovable substance, and some say this is separate, whereas some divided it into two, namely those who divided this class into forms and mathematicals whereas others posit only mathematicals. Sensible substances are the subject of physics, for they have motion, whereas the other is the subject of another science, if there is no one principle common to them. But sensible substances are changeable, if change proceeds from opposites or from intermediates, but not from all kinds of opposites, for voices non-white, but only from the opposites that are contraries. There must be something underlying that which changes into the contrary. According to the Neoplatonic commentators, it is evident that Aristotle does not, and never did, hold that changeable substances are the only substances there are. Not only is book Lambda of Metaphysics taken to be relevant to Aristotle's intentions in categories, but so is what he says in the exoteric works as well if one does not simply assume that categories must represent an early phase of aristotle's development presumably along with books lambda and epsilon then it is reasonable to suppose that nothing said about substance in categories is intended to contradict claims about unchangeable substances that is categories is not correctly understood as implicitly assuming the absolute priority of sensible substance. Further, if the science of unchangeables includes the study of changeables with respect to their being the situation of categories within a subordinate science, that is the science of changeables is nicely accounted for according to the harmonization principle. The science of the sensible world can be fitted into or under the broader science that includes the sensible world from the perspective of the first principles and of being. This science is platonic science. It is not undermined by a non-absolutist categorization of things in the sensible world with composite substances as the focus. The relatively unknown Dexippus provides a valuable part of the story of harmonization in his one extant work on Aristotle's categories. It appears that Dexippus was a pupil or disciple of Iamblichus. He seems to have been committed to harmonization, but two generations after Plotinus, he sees it as requiring the integration of Aristotelianism with Platonism as interpreted by Plotinus, yet Plotinus, as we know, strongly criticizes Aristotle. Therefore, Dexippus, no doubt in many ways dependent on Porphyry and Iamblichus, feels he has to defend the harmonizing interpretation of Categories against Plotinus's attacks. Thus, so to say, if Plotinus had been clear, uh, had seen clearly what Categories was about he would have realized that Aristotle is actually in harmony with Platonism. The general point is of some importance, because it is precisely in this way that Aristotle's uh, explicit attacks on Platonism are frequently interpreted according to the harmonization principle. Dexippus follows the Porphyrian uh, explanation of the aim of categories in both his Isagoge and his Commentary. According to Dixippus, the work is for beginners and is about words, not things. In reply to the objection that Plotinian criticisms of Aristotle's account of substance cannot be fairly answered by assuming that Aristotle is a Platonist, Dexippus appeals to Book Lambda of Metaphysics to show that Aristotle himself was aware that in t- talking about sensible substance he is leaving out of account supersensible substance. That this claim is implausible can be maintained, I think, only if one uncritically assumes developmentalism in Aristotle's thought. In any case, Dexippus wants to show not just that categories has a limited aim, but that everything said there is in harmony with platonic principles. Quote, For this is what Aristotle lays down about these substances in Book Lambda of Metaphysics, and here he subsumes the multiplicity of substances under substance in general. He brought them all together into one system and traced them back to one originating principle. For it will hardly be that anything else would participate in unity if substance itself, which has its being in the One, is to be denied that completeness, which is attributable to unity. So, since intelligible reality is ineffable, he makes use of the name of substance metaphorically and analogically from what is fundament- familiar to sense perception. End quote. Note, first of all, Dexippus' assumption that an account of the multiplicity of types of substance must be rooted in an originating principle, arché and the further assumption that this originating principle is the neoplatonic one. It's enough for harmonization that Aristotelian principles imply platonic principles, even if Aristotle does not himself explicitly recognize this implication. In addition, Dexippus gives us the principle according to which the term substance is applicable to intelligibles. The term is applied to intelligibles metaphorically or analogously. Dexippus' understanding of the distinction between metaphor and analogy is not exactly transparent. If he is following Porphyry, then a term is applied metaphorically when it has a proper designation and is applied to something else which has its own proper designation. A term is applied analogously to two or more things when neither has its own proper designation. Since Dexippus holds that intelligible reality is ineffable, he evidently supposes that it does not have its own proper designation. Therefore, if substance is used to designate it, it is done by analogy. But then it would not be applied analogously to sensible substance, if substance uh, is its proper designation. In that case, substance would presumably be applied metaphorically to intelligibles. The central point Dixipus is making, I think, is that substance in categories is applied properly to sensibles and metaphorically to intelligibles, but the metaphor is of a special sort that is analogical, because intelligibles are ineffable. If the sensible world is an image of the intelligible world, as Platonists generally hold, then the metaphor should go the other way. Intelligibles should be the primary designate of whatever terms are applied both to them and to sensibles. That is what Plotinus did in designating the real man as the form of man, and Socrates as man metaphorically. But here the order of designation is reversed. The reason seems to be epistemological. Aristotle himself maintained the principle that, quote, The natural way to proceed is from what is more known and clearer to us to what is by nature clearer and more known. This is the order of investigation. It is how knowledge of first principles is attained. By contrast, in order of scientific demonstration is from what is more known by nature to what is more known to us." Quote. Dexippus actually assumes, perhaps from Porphyry and Iamblichus, a benign and favorable interpretation of Aristotle. He assumes that the epistemological order from the immediate, sensible, and particular to the intelligible is a passage from effect to cause. The ineffability of the cause is a separate point. Aristotle's doctrine might be interpreted by an opponent as self-defeating, if in thus proceeding the result is not a cause, but merely uh, universals. As we have seen, Neoplatonists are not hostile to an Aristotelian account of universals. They are hostile to an account that makes universals mistakes universals for explanatory entities. It is not, Neoplatonists would insist, because man is a rational animal, and rational animals are capable of laughter, that man is capable of laughter. So long as one supposes that man and other such terms designate universals. On the contrary, only the intelligible realm explains the connections here below that Aristotle characterizes in terms of species, genus, differentia, and property. But in this case, the intelligible realm is not to be construed as a tableau of universals. And the differences between the true causes and their effects mean that epistemologically, one proceeds from effects that can be described in perceptible terms to causes that are utterly incapable of being so described. Dexippus seems exactly uh, right to maintain that both Plato and Aristotle believe that these causes could not be substances in the sense in which the effects are substances. Daniel Graham has argued at great length that the account of substance in categories actually contradicts the account of substance in metaphysics. Graham himself believes that in the latter work, Metaphysics, By identifying form with substance, Aristotle makes an unnecessary and damaging concession to Platonism. Hence, on Graham's account of Aristotle's two systems, the Neoplatonists claim that categories expresses the same, that is, Platonic, view as metaphysics, albeit in a simplified form, cannot be correct unless, that is, Aristotle is contradicting himself. On the system contained in organon, in general, substances are atomic. On the system contained in metaphysics, substances are hylomorphic, that is composed of form and matter. Graham argues that the motivation for Aristotle's abandonment of the first system and embrace of the second is to provide the basis for a satisfactory account of change. For this, a concept of matter is needed. As Aristotle explains in physics, I have more to uh, excuse me, yeah. For this, a concept of matter is needed, as Aristotle explains in Physics. I have more to say in the next chapter about matter in Aristotle. Here, I focus on the contention that the hylomorphic conception of substance is incompatible with the atomic conception of substance found by Graham in Categories and also in the rest of Organon. Graham finds in the passage quoted above from Categories 5, 4a, 10 through 21, quote, a glimmer of an insight into the nature of change. But because there is no temporal dimension mentioned explicitly in the criterion of substance, that quote, being one and the same in number, substance is receptive of contraries, end quote. Aristotle cannot be said here to have the concept of matter necessary for an account of the principles of change. Graham says this despite the fact that Aristotle in the next sentence gives an example of the reception of contraries, explicitly mentioning the temporal parameter. Still, we can concede Graham's point that an underlying principle of change is not explicitly mentioned in categories, and that this principle is not thematized, as it is in physics and metaphysics. Nevertheless, the more important point is Graham's claim that the introduction of the concept of matter as a component of substance in the latter works heralds a fundamental change in, indeed a reversal of, doctrine. For sensible substance latterly composed of matter and form is no longer fundamental as it, is supposedly, in, as it supposedly is in categories. Assuming that Graham is correct in holding that sensible substance is not ontologically ultimate in metaphysics, just because it is composed of form and matter, the question then becomes, is it so in categories, as Graham claims? In order to maintain this position, one would first of all have to disregard the claims in the Exoterica regarding God, Intellect, and Divine Intelligibles. Otherwise, one would be forced, as is Graham, to assign Eudemus, Protrepticus, and On Philosophy to the period in which Aristotle was committed to the second of his two systems and had rejected the first. Second, one would have to excise from On Interpretation the passage in which Aristotle says, quote, It is evident from what has been said that that which necessarily exists, exists in actuality. So, that if if eternal things are prior, actuality is also prior to potentiality. And some things are actualities without potentiality. For example, the primary substances. Some things are actualities with potentiality, and these are what are prior prior by nature, though posterior in time, And some things are never actualities, but are potentialities alone. Graham recognizes that this passage contradicts his claim that sensibles, albeit atomic sensibles, are the primary substances. So he rejects the passage as an insertion by Aristotle, no doubt, which does not belong to the original version of on interpretation. This, of course, is possible, but the motive for claiming claiming it is odd. It is that only in Aristotle's later period, the period of his second system, did he come to identify primary substance with the supersensible. This too is perhaps possible, but what I find highly implausible, if not impossible, is that Aristotle at any point in his career held the view that what what undergoes change, sensible substance, is absolutely fundamental in the universe whether or not one shares Graham's interpretation of categories, that interpretation is plainly part of the legacy of developmentalism. One may reject developmentalism, or a segmented version of it, without taking the Harmonist's line. But, from the Neoplatonist perspective, doing so would require a reading of metaphysics every bit as one-sided as the sort of reading of categories offered by Graham. As a matter of fact, there is more, far more unambiguous evidence throughout the Aristotelian corpus to support the view that sensible substances are not absolutely basic in the universe than there is evidence to the contrary. Graham's conclusion that Aristotle's path was actually a, develop, uh, a developmentalism and any form of... Graham's conclusion that... Aristotle's path was actually a dev- devolution, downward to Platonic ignominy. Contradicts both Jagerian developmentalism and any form of anti-developmentalism. It is not unreasonable, or so it seems to me, to question the common underlying assumption that leads one scholar to argue that Aristotle traverses the path from pro to anti-Platonist, and another to argue on the same evidence that he does the reverse.